The only reason I picked Arrival over Hunter Gatherer is that if you didn't pick Arrival, I would have picked Arrival. I just didn't want to talk about a movie that no one had seen. I do it all the time. It's fun. All right, guys, before getting into today's episode, we wanted to remind everybody that we've got a listener suggestion episode coming up where you guys can pick the movies that we fight about. In order to get your suggestion on the show, all you have to do is leave us a review on iTunes and then email us at fightaboutfilm at gmail.com or message us on Facebook and let us know which movie you'd like us to talk about. Spots are filling up fast, so leave a review soon. Thanks. This is Four Friends Fight About Film, a podcast about movies and things more important than movies, if we ever find any. Mm-hmm. Guys, the academy. Ca- ca- not yet. We don't, we don't, we're not really checking in every time. We're not? It's just eventually, if we ever find any. I spend most of my week looking for something more important. <laughs> looking behind your kids and your wife, and looking all around, find something Where more important. Where is that? I Mostly know I in the somewhere. movie theater. <laughs> the Academy Awards were this past weekend. What'd you guys think of the uh, the winners? Good show. I don't think I've ever watched the Academy Awards. Really? <laughs> really? HP and I watch it every year. Yeah, I mean, I've seen parts. But no. Yeah, I'd rather not. You guys can call yourselves movies fans. They're important. Yeah, I'd rather spend that time watching a movie than watching people get awards <laughs> it's for just movies. Four hours. It really just it's makes just you enough to watch two or three movies. Watching the Oscars just three makes, movies. Watching the Oscars just makes you an Oscars fan, not a movies fan. Yeah. No. It's not true. Yeah. Yeah. And a celebrity whore. Yeah, no, the Oscars are that stupid. That could be true. All right, so today we are going to be talking about our favorite Oscar snubs. That is, movies that got nominated for Best Picture but unfairly lost. So, losers. Best or as Gibby calls it, Best Oscar Losers. Best Oscar. It's such a negative way to look at it, Gibby. Yeah, Best Losers. Yeah, these snubs, are our favorite losers. Unfairly, unfairly lost. Say your name and who you would pick to host the Oscars. My name is Hudson. I'm going to go with Louis C.K. feel like oh, he'd, he'd be funny. He'd be good. good. He'd kind of, you know, rib everybody yeah. a little bit. Do but you feel he'd, like he'd also, he would absolutely not do it. But the thing about him is he has, he does seem to have a respect for filmmaking and the art of it. So I feel oh, like sure he does. I feel like he'd strike yeah. a good balance there of not totally making fun of it, but making fun of the right Just things. A bit. Director of Pootie Tang, Louis C.K. <laughs> Why wouldn't he do it? Hold on, Louis C.K. directed Pootie Tang? Yeah. Yeah. And wrote it, wrote it too? Yeah, wrote it, directed it. There's a lot of like cuts and stuff. I don't even know if he got in credit for it by the time. Wow. Yeah, it's pretty crazy. I didn't know that. Yeah. Uh, all right, Gibby? I'd pick James Franco and Anne Hathaway. Let's give them another shot. Both super <laughs> likable people. Just not when Until they, they hosted the Oscars. the Oscars. I didn't yeah. think anyone liked it. I've never seen anybody be so lethargic at hosting I mean, anything. You want to give Franco? You want to give Hitler another shot yeah. too? I mean, why, why would you do that? I think at I think Jimmy Franks has learned a lot. Yeah, you don't remember in '39? Yeah. When you, I don't. <laughs> <laughs> the Oscar goes to. Wow. <laughs> does, that mean I have to do, does that mean I have to do Going a Hitler voice wind. at the end of this? <laughs> <Yeah>. <laughs> the Oscar goes to all. <laughs> uh, Lance. Uh, this is Lance. I'm going to go with fitness guru Richard Simmons. <laughs> uh, I've watched the Oscars a couple times, and I, I whenever I get to the end, I'm like, why was there why was there no mention of cardiovascular health? Why was there no entire, sweat to the oldies? Yeah, wh- where's the, where's that? <laughs> I never thought about it that way. It's because you're not insane. <laughs> I'm Jordan, and I would pick America's Funny Man, Neil Hamburger. Oh, why didn't I think of that one? <laughs> okay. You guys don't know who Neil Hamburger nah. is? Sounds He's, not oh. like a real name. 
I doubt that it's his birth name. Yeah. He's a comedian that's been name. around for a long, long time now. He has a comb over and big glasses and he wears a suit and he's a terrible comedian. But he's <laughs> also as hilarious as he is terrible. For instance, this joke. <laughs> he prepared for this. Who huh. currently holds the most amount of Grammy Awards statuettes? That's right. The pawn shop across the street from Anthony Kiedis's drug dealer. <laughs> Yeah, that's, well, that's, that's pretty good. That's no, that's the point. It's yeah. bad, I could, bad jokes, and he's always could, spilling stuff. And um, doing, that's my life. I could take three hours yeah. of that. Neil Hamburger is a character played by Greg Turkington. Yep, the hmm. actor Greg Turkington. Uh, he Jordan, used to tour a lot, opening for like uh, indie bands in the late nineties. Uh, I'm sure he would also love to host the Oscars or have anything that pays him for his <laughs> skill set. Jordan put more research into that question than I did into this whole com- upcoming <laughs> podcast. Good job, Gibby. All right, we asked you guys on Facebook what your favorite Oscar snubs were, and we got some responses. Gibby, you want to take this first one? Sure. This is Chris Adams. Saving Private Ryan, losing to Shakespeare in love. Still ticks me off. Chris Adams is correct. Yeah, yeah, this that's, is that's the, a great choice, Chris. Yeah, that's is, why we don't mention it in today's episode. Yeah, I, we didn't pick it. I, I think part of the reason we didn't pick this one, this is a this is a very obvious choice, but I think also when you look at everything that was nominated that year, there were several movies that were better than Shakespeare in Love that year. Thin Blue Line, Life is Beautiful. Gibby disagrees, but he's wrong. Thin Red Line. Uh, did I say Thin Blue Line? You, you sure did. did. That was uh, the wrong year. Thin, thin Green Line. Yeah, some color. The Thimble Line. Just Red, the Thin Line. Well, it was a trilogy, <laughs> red, white, and blue. Yeah. <laughs> Lines. Three, three colors, Thin Blue three Line. Three color lines. Um, yeah, no, great choice. I think this is this one comes up on a lot of these lists, yeah. Um, yeah. but we won't be talking about it today. Excellent choice. Uh, all right, this is uh, Amanda Rogers. Goodwill Hunting, losing to Titanic. Amanda's been smoking a lot. <laughs> I love Good Will Hunting. Did you guys like that movie? Yeah. It it affected me a little bit too much when I first saw it. I was very sensitive. You could relate man. to it a lot as a math genius. Math, uh, mathematician. No. no. Oh, as a janitor. Yeah. <laughs> more, more of the janitor part. <laughs> I think that year again, we, Titanic will actually come up later on this episode. Ooh, um, yeah. Oh, you have another is, pick over time. Yeah, I, I didn't pick that one. Lance, you want to take this last one? Joe Parisi? All right. So Joe, Joe gave us uh, uh, about nine different snubs that he felt were unfair. Yeah, Joe, let's um, follow directions from now on. We're, on, we're only going to read a couple of them, though. <laughs> Can't go through life just not following the rules. Twelve Angry Men, listen to the bridge on the river choir. Dr. Strangelove, losing to my fair lady. Raging Bull, losing to ordinary people. Brokeback Mountain, losing to Crash. It's a pretty, it's a pretty rude choice considering the Mary Tyler Moore just died. <laughs> I shouldn't say just because this doesn't come out for like three more months. Considering who died? Mary Tyler Moore. What was she in? Ordinary yeah, she people. Oh, uh, uh, I thought she was talking about my voice. I was like, is that how she talks? <laughs> yeah, it's exactly how she talks. That's what I thought too. No, voice. That's I think people. Th- these are these are interesting <laughs> choices. I think I agree. I think I agree with all of them. I definitely agree with Bro- Brokeback Mountain and Doctor Strange Love and Raging Bull. I don't know if I agree with Twelve Angry Men because I just mm. love Bridge on the River Quiet, but I get it. I can't. You do love Bridge. Yeah. yeah. All right. If you guys want your favorites right on the show, you can leave your comments at facebook.com slash fightaboutfilm. So Oscar snubs, did you guys have a lot of options for this one? Yeah, how this was you, one uh, of my how harder did you lists. land? I had like uh, 86. How many? Uh, how many? <laughs> 86 years. How many, yeah. How many years has it been? It's 20, so 80 something. Yeah. Sure. That's about how many options I had. Oh, you thought they were all incorrect? No, I just, I, these aren't normally the movies I watch, so I haven't seen a lot of Best Picture Good nominees. Good movies. The reason, the reason there's so many choices is because Oscar gets it wrong over and over yeah. and over, and that's why the correct. Oscars should not be watched and be relevant. It happens in kind of a vacuum of that year. A movie gets popular, it gets talked about a lot, it gets a lot of buzz. A lot of the times people have 
haven't even seen all the movies they're voting for. And so something through the campaign of the Weinstein brothers or whoever, I mean, these movies get campaigned for. It turns into a political thing. So really what happens is a movie wins and then that movie disappears. And and really it takes time to kind of sort things out. I mean, it takes, you know, you need like five to 10 years to really look back on a year and see what really the great movies were. I mean, time is kind of the great equalizer when all of that. Yeah, but I think it's okay to, to make a decision based on like all the recent things you've seen. I think I think it's okay to take a year, watch, you know, however many movies, then come out of it and be like, you know what, this was the I thought this one was the best. But I think in order to do that, you have to have had seen all of the options. Right. That's, That's the problem. Real right. important. It is movies being rewarded by movie people. So it's people in the industry voting on their favorite movies. What I prefer is by peers. What, I, I remember seeing an interview with Harrison Ford several years ago where where he was talking about, yeah, I don't really care about the Oscars. They said, Why? Like they were shocked that he didn't care about the Oscars. And he said, Because I don't understand this idea of having to say that this movie is better. Better than this movie, he said that was just strange to him. I guess yeah, it's that's a little odd yeah. since that's we kind do of that what we every do week. on the show. But <laughs> that's pretty what we do. Um, um, I, I do think you're right though that it's hard to tell until uh, some time has passed. So I think all of us did a pretty good job of at least picking movies that are at least ten years older or older. Yeah, I really them. love what the American Film Institute does, where they just list their ten best movies of that year. They don't feel the need to rank them or organize right. them in any way. They right. just say these are the ten most important movies that came out this year. Well, they're organized alphabetically. I wish the Oscars. <laughs> 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 I wish the Oscars would do more of a kind of like a list like that and do more of an unveiling. Like here are the 10 movies yeah. that came People out. People love a competition of, though. Yeah, they do. I think the Super Bowl should just be two teams standing out on the field <laughs> and everybody just kind of claps. For they them. select. Yeah. <laughs> All right. Let's jump into our list. So um, I'm going to kick us off. My number three Oscar snub was 2007 Atonement, Great which film. lost to No Country for Old Men, which I believe was on our most overrated episode. Isn't that right? Yeah. I'm Jordan pretty sure Pick. there were probably hundreds of movies that came out that year <laughs> that were better than No Country for Old Men. Now I enjoyed No Country for Old Men, but it did not stay with me as much as Atonement did. Atonement is an adaptation of Ian McEwan's novel uh, directed by Joe Wright. It's an epic romantic love story set against World War II, but with a very modern take on it. The film takes place over three time periods in the life of Bryony Tallis. First, at age 13. Time periods or time zones? Time periods. Got it. So it's not like they move from Eastern to Central to... No, different ages Got it. Of, okay. of her life. Um, first at age 13, where um, after she witnesses a love affair between her sister Cecilia and her sister's lover, Robbie, she mistakenly identifies him as a wanted man in a rape investigation, who, spoiler alert, is actually uh, the actual raper was a uh, young and creepy Benedict Cumberbatch. Very creepy. Super creepy. Yeah. So secondly, at age 18 as a nurse where she tries to make amends for her mistake. And finally, decades later, now late in her life and a famous author having written about her story. To me, it's a powerful love story, but more importantly, it's a story about the power of storytelling and how history can or cannot be rewritten in our attempts to atone for our mistakes. I love this movie. Very, very. I beautiful. remember walking out of the theater just kind of with my legs weak at how it affected me. My legs oh, were weak, guys. You should have just well, stayed sitting twice. down. Yeah, yeah, I should have, but I didn't. I'm Never stand up until you feel strong enough to stand <laughs> up. Yeah, you got to check your knees. I almost fell down the stairs. Um, I, I was. I mean, it. It would be my favorite movie of 2006 or seven, whatever year it came out. Might as well. Uh, 2007, fantastic. It's. Uh, was nominated for six Academy Awards, including Best Picture, obviously, but 14 BAFTA nominations in where it won Best Picture. Uh, wow. That's the British uh, Film Academy, um, which, once again, British gets it right. <laughs> the British the American British. Royal Flight Academy. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> the British American Free Trade Agreement. <laughs> so it did win Academy Award for Best Score, and I think rightly so, composer Dario Mirinelli, who integrated typewriters as a percussion instrument. That was super cool. 
So I'm going to get really Jordan on you guys for a second. Yeah. Um, loved this movie, and then the last five minutes just ruined it for me. What? Are you so, serious? Yeah, let's talk about the twist real quick. Spoiler no. alert. Are we talking about the twist? I tried to avoid it. So we, at the end of the film, we, we believe that the two people that this young girl has hurt are still alive and are married and happy now. And what we find out is they had actually died years earlier. Mm, he died. And, well, he died and she died. Yeah, they, they both, both died. died. Okay. She had written a book that right. was a, the story of their life, and it, you, it turns out it's not a true story. Oh, was it in a you, notebook? As you think it is. <laughs> Call back. So no, it's a novel. This woman destroys two people's lives after a lie she tells when she's a kid, and her atonement is that when she's an adult and both of these people have died, she writes a story where they ended up together. Mm-hmm. How the f- does that qualify as an atonement? <laughs> How can she else can she live with herself? That was her way of writing their happy story. Okay. Yeah. Well, Lance thinks that, that she should die too. Well, and now, that love story now lives on forever. Yeah. Yeah. Well, okay. This movie should have been called "Half-Ass Gesture" that came fifty years too late and didn't do anyone any good. That's what they should have called this movie. <laughs> he did this just for that joke. Yeah. So <laughs> I did, I this did it is it's true. I mean, but but that's the whole point of the story. That's the whole question it's yeah. asking, and that that's you know kind of what I've referenced is: Can you rewrite history? Can you atone for mistakes that you've made in the past? The How, what no. what kind of power does storytelling have? Can you tell a story that outlasts the actual? people i'm just saying if i'm a criminal i kill a bunch of people i don't get to say hey don't worry guys i wrote a story where they all live so we're good right it just doesn't work that way well, well, well try it lance so let me yeah. let me well, ask you, you this at, since, since you guys had different opinions about this ending did you feel like it raised that question and didn't answer it or do you feel like the ending answered the question no i don't think she at the end of her life she still felt she had not atoned for this this right. was her attempt to do that so what just happened was that Kyle and Hudson love a movie that they feel like is devastating and hopeless <laughs> at the end yeah so we need to not. That, that performance right there yeah, deserves an Oscar yeah, I, that, that, <laughs> I, mean, I thought it was devastating it really is that's yeah. one of the reasons I left the theater just kind of weak it's like oh up to that point in the film I agree with you guys I thought it was wonderful mm. I thought the I thought the long shot at uh, Dunkirk uh, was incredible yeah the music it's, is it's beautiful it's about a six-minute-long one-take shot. Yeah. That they, it's the beach at Dunkirk after the kind of devastation that yeah. happened there and the bombings and things. Uh, just gorgeous and going in and out of these different kind of vignettes. Yeah. <laughs> had, had the film I had the film vignettes, Hudson. Had the film ended as well as it started, I, I would have agreed with you guys. It would have been the uh, best. See, I thought, yeah, the, I thought the ending made it. Yeah, I, I, I wouldn't have Hudson. liked it as much without the ending. Right. All right, Gibby, you're number three. So my number three... Uh, Best movie to lose an Oscar is from 2010. <laughs> I love how Gibby always <laughs> repeats the. T- no, I like how he always repeats the title of the show whenever. He, in case well, you, you don't remember what we're. Yeah. In case you don't remember what we're talking remember. about. In case you just flipped your television to this show. <laughs> <laughs> it's 2010, The Social Network. This lost to the King's Speech, and I actually had a hard time. It's in 2010 picking which of the losers I wanted to go with because three of my ten favorite movies of the last decade were 2010. But you hated King's Speech? I didn't hate King's Speech. I really liked King's Speech, actually. But I thought that there was three other movies that are all-timers. What are they? Social Network, Toy Story 3, and Inception. And I know I shocked Ooh, all you guys Inception. by not going Pixar. Uh, oh, yeah, Toy, Toy Story, Story 3. 3. We're going to go uh, see if we can go this whole season of episodes without you picking a Pixar. Too late movie. on this one. Too, yeah. Oh, you didn't choose Pixar, but we talked about it. All right, so anyway, Social <laughs> Network. <laughs> Social Network, guys. It's David Fincher's 2010 immensely watchable film about the creation and ensuing legal battles over Facebook. So this film's told in and out of order with cuts to multiple depositions and the story of how Mark Zuckerberg, played by a really good Jesse Eisenberg, created the Facebook. So it's written by Aaron Sorkin, and he and Fincher do an incredible job of upping the tension throughout the whole movie, even though we already know how it's going to end. And I think that one of the reasons I really like this movie is it's not your typical Oscar bait. It's not a movie that you think, 
even just the subject matter of it is one that typically is up for Oscars. And then there's just a precision to it that's kind of really sharp. And I'm not sure I've ever really seen it to a movie. And uh, I think it's just a lot of fun. I mean, on on paper, not on the actual script because it's Sorkin, but, you know, like the idea on paper, like this should not be a good movie. Yeah, no. This should be a terrible, mm. boring, just dumb movie. And it is like the most action-packed, quick-paced, like yeah. awesome, crazy yeah, movie. It it's, really I don't even, I still don't, I've seen it several times. I don't understand how it works. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, especially when you know thirty percent of it's taking place of just people talking into a recorder, right? At a, at a deposition, and I still feel on the edge of my seat, like rewatching it. I already know what's right. going to happen. I still get that gut punch that happens at the end of the movie with the two friends. It, it still gets me every single time. It's I really fantastic. I really liked Social Network. I think the the one issue I always had with it is that it felt like the tone was disconnected from the subject matter a little bit. And maybe part of that is because I'm so used to David Fincher doing like way crazier topics than a movie about, you know, the guy who started Facebook. Like the stakes don't feel high. Yeah. I mean, again, I'm not saying it's inappropriate. It just, it kind of like murder. Yeah. It it. kind of subconsciously (laughs) nagged at me a little bit. Yeah. I mean, I think that's what it is. It was like, I mean, first off, I didn't like a lot of these characters. Yeah. And I think that, I I think so. It was kind of hard to like really to relate Mm. to anybody in the film, but. I, I just I felt what the movie was a, about didn't require the weightiness of of the tone and the look of it. You know, I just I, yeah, that so was a little. So you odd think to me. someone other than Fincher should have done it? Because yeah, I guess it's I very kinda, Fincher. But then if Fincher hadn't Fincher. done it, it wouldn't have been as good. That's the that's exactly. kind of the exactly. That's, yeah. that's the other side of it. So yeah, you're kind of judging that based on the director, which I mean, he should be able to direct anything you want. Oh no, he to. totally. He yeah. to- no, it's not that I'm judging on the director. It's just it didn't. Why do you want to put Fincher in a box? What's in the box? <laughs> <laughs> um, Fincher's in the box. So, so again, I, I'm I'm not disagreeing with the pick. I liked King's Speech too. King's Speech though was a total like Oscar. Yeah, formulaic that's what we were movie. talking about earlier. Yeah. The movies that are made to win Oscars. King's yeah. Speech was a movie. Uh, that was made I saw to win King's Speech in the movie theater by myself. I fell asleep during it. <laughs> wow. So I should tell you something. That's an expensive yeah. nap. Yeah. <laughs> it was. Yeah. King's Speech is one of those movies that like me and my grandmother would love. You know. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and and I I like King's Speech too. I think it's a pretty good film. The sequel. Yeah. King's Speech also. It's, but it is your traditional Oscar pick and winner. And I think it just would have been really cool if the Academy had, had chosen the social network. Because what I recall from 2010, basically the, the final two that they thought would go against was social network versus uh, King's Speech, depending on what had won before. I and mean, that's and, what everybody was talking about on social media. Yeah. <laughs> the social network is kind of a movie of its time too and it felt like maybe it captured something in that particular year which is something that is great when you can look back on the academy awards and say oh that movie was reflective of what was going on in, in that time period lance lance uh number three lord of the rings fellowship of the ring Peter Jackson's 2001 film is the first film in the Lord of the Rings trilogy. It tells us the story of Frodo, a young hobbit who is charged with traveling across Middle-earth with a band of allies to destroy a powerful ring. I don't think this is a film that requires a ton of description, as everyone is pretty familiar with it. This is my favorite of the Lord of the Rings films. And I think part of the reason I love it so much is because it's I've got a thing for movies about teams, like different personalities working together to achieve <laughs> I think something. You said teens. Lance lets us know something kind of weird. <laughs> I'm pretty sure that's Hudson that loves teen movies, <laughs> yeah. not Lance. Yeah. I remember getting to the end of this movie, and I had not read the books yet. I read them after the films came out, and I remember getting to this movie and going, "Yeah, but they're going to get back together in the next movie, right?" Nope. 
this the, these characters won't see each other again until eight hours later at the end of the third film. And I really like the second one. I loathe the third one. You can go back to our overrated episode in season one if you want to hear about that. But but that's why this one holds a special place for me. We get to learn about this fascinating place called Middle Earth, the various races of people who comprise it, and the history that has led to its current situation. So it totally won Best Picture, right? Well, if you don't know the answer to that, you haven't been paying attention to the show. <laughs> you're not, you're watching the wrong show. The Academy, in their infinite wisdom, decided A Beautiful Mind was the superior picture that year. The leading theory among film scholars on why Lord <laughs> of the Rings lost that year is that the Academy is a bunch of f***ing idiots. I want to say I don't, I, I don't think that's accurate. I know you don't. You're gonna. <laughs> I want to say I don't hate A Beautiful Mind, but it wasn't the best picture that year, and I think history has already started to bear that out. As A Beautiful Mind has kind of already been, it's kind of forgotten. Yeah, it's kind of been relegated to the dustbin. I will say about this film that while I think it should have won, I'm I'm equally surprise it got nominated at all and that's because the academy has a very strange relationship with certain genres of films and seems to ignore them no matter how good they are sci-fi films fantasy films horror films with the three genres that kind of come to mind there you can maybe count on one hand how many films have been nominated from each genre since the os- the first oscar was handed out now in fairness especially when we're talking about fantasy films and horror films there aren't a lot of great ones to begin with so they're less likely to get noticed but it puts them in a position where if you're a horror director you have to make a much better film than a drama a, a drama director to get noticed it's kind of like, not to bring up a controversial talk, topic, but people talk about white privilege or male privilege. There seems to be a drama privilege when it comes to, yeah. to Oscar films. But Jackson's film cut through that and became the first fantasy film to ever get nominated for Best Picture, and it was well-deserved. First fantasy film to ever get nominated? I think so. Really? I, I couldn't <laughs> think of one. You guys come up with one. Right. No, no research. They're just gonna. <laughs> yeah. That feels yeah. right. Unless Tom Cruise's Legend got nominated in 1985 or whatever it was. Uh, you mean you mean like strictly fa- yeah. fantasy world? Like yeah. if you okay, want to consider gotcha. Star Wars a fantasy film, I guess you could. But I think I mean a strict traditional fantasy. I loved A Beautiful Mind. I remember it being one of my favorite movies of that year. I haven't rewatched it since the theater. I think so. I don't know how it holds up. Fellowship I've seen many, many times, and I and it is my favorite, and, and I love it. And to me, it's one of those movies, and I'm going to be talking about one later as well, that you just sink into, mm-hmm. and you ju- you're just in this world, and it's almost relaxing, and you just want to hang out and, and, and be in it. Yeah, it's, it's the perfect sick day movie. <clears throat> yeah. Yeah, it yeah, really is. Just well, um, in it. Yeah, Afton, my wife, every rainy day that she's at home, she'll put on the whole trilogy, and I always make fun of her. I was like, well, can't we start with number two or number three, because we're only going to get through the first <laughs> one. <laughs> Um, but I, I'm curious, Lance, because you say that a beautiful mind does not hold up, but you're, you're speaking not because you've seen it recently, but because no one's talking about it anymore. Right. So it could still be a fantastic movie. I didn't really think it was a fantastic, I and mean, I liked it when but I saw time, it. I didn't, I didn't think it was incredible. Like it. Correct. And then correct. In, in the larger sphere well, you, of uh, again, things, again, we get it, we get into objective versus subjective sure. again. Objectively, I'm saying when you hear about movies being mentioned in the popular culture, Lord of the Rings comes up all the time. Beautiful yeah. Mind is just not discussed anymore. A lot of people haven't seen it. It's kind of faded. But how much do you wish Lord of the Rings had won so that Return of the King wouldn't have won. Didn't wouldn't, didn't have wouldn't to win. I think what I think what perplexes me more is why it all had to be done in one year. Like like why did we have to hold things and you know let's don't let's not give it to the first two films. Let's wait until the third film and award it all that year. That's odd to me. Yeah, I don't know why the films couldn't be judged separately. Um, 
which maybe maybe they were. I think mm-hmm. the general wisdom is that they just decided to give everything to Return of the King for the overall effort of the three films. Yeah, I think right. I mean, it's not that effort. organized. Though. It's not like one guy. I know. Like, oh, I, I, know. We should, I mean, it's yeah. like thousands of people voting. For I know, this, so and that's that's why I, that's what they're talking about at parties. And maybe maybe a lot of them hadn't actually seen Lord of the Rings. That could it could be. And again, that gets I don't back watch to another fantasy movies. Don't make me watch fantasy. Is movies. it a Southern <laughs> general? <laughs> uh, I'm going Tantidum to fight the Yankees. <laughs> I don't have time to watch a nine-hour movie. Where's my saber? <laughs> Couple of things. I mean, Beautiful Mind is like King's Speech, a movie that was made to win Oscars. Oh yeah, totally. And so I think that may just say something too: is that those movies are kind of forgettable after years. Yeah, but I don't know. But a Beautiful Mind, it, it had a fantasy element to it as well. I mean, it was a true story, but the way the story plays out. If you didn't know the true story, it's not a again. It's not a bad film. I got an amazing score. I, I still have some of the tracks on my iPod. I listen to the score still. Um, you still have an iPod, not like a clunky one that weighs five <laughs> pounds from like nineteen ninety eight. But it, it, it's when you when you read lists online of, of worst best picture winners, a beautiful mind does come up a lot. Really? Is that fair? I don't. I don't know. I don't. I haven't really taken the time to do an analysis of it. But mm-hmm. but again, it's just it's a film that is not as well regarded now. Um, and, it, and it's a great example to me of time kind of separating the wheat from the chaff. And Good pick. All right, Jordan, number three. The year is 1948. Director John Huston is home from the war and ready to make Hollywood films again. He adapts a book of the same name and makes the incredible treasure of the Sierra Madre about three down-and-out men to, who go prospecting for gold in Mexico and the story of their struggles with the work, some bandits, some unwanted visitors, violence, and their own greed and paranoia. Humphrey Bogart stars as Dobbs, a perfectly poisonous anti-hero. John Huston's own father plays one of the three men. It's a powerful and moving story with one of the greatest endings in all of film history. John Huston would take home the awards for both directing and adapted screenplay. Here's an interesting tidbit. The original novel was written by a mysterious person of the name B. Traven, or Traven, but no one, even to this day, knows the true identity of the author. Really? Huh. Yeah. Uh, there was a man on set whose name I can't remember. Bob Traven. <laughs> <laughs> Nobody put it together. <laughs> who who claimed to be the assistant of B. Traven and like a, a, a go-between. Really? And worked closely with Houston on the film. But Houston, to his death, never believed that that was is that, right? that yeah. was B. Traven. So a lot of people think it was like this. <laughs> was German. that like the last thing he said on his deathbed? It yeah. wasn't B. Traven. Was it? B. Traven. There's been a lot of theories, and every couple of years, somebody will be like, "Oh, I figured it out," but really? but it's never actually been. That's solved. super. Wow. I've never heard that. I love a good movie mystery. Yeah, it's a good one. Walter Houston, the director's dad, won the Academy Award for Best Supporting Actor, and this was the first time that the Academy gave a father and a son both Oscars. At the same ceremony. I don't know if this introduced that character, but that old prospector character <laughs> is one of my favorite things in movies. I yeah. love that. Like, yeah, you don't know the better <laughs> A friend of ours once had a great idea. It'd been great if Obi-Wan Kenobi and Star Wars had been like that. <laughs> been that Luke, you got to learn the force. <laughs> ah, peaches. Ah, cinnamon and gravy. <laughs> that that character in Treasure of the Sierra Madre is, is amazing. He's so Well, he so does this. Good. And one of the famous scenes from this is when he kind of does a, a jig, mm-hmm. like a dance. Yeah. Over the, yeah, <laughs> it's yeah, so yeah. great, and he's got this laugh, this like yeah. super infectious laugh. That's, yeah, uh, it's amazing. <laughs> Yet, despite all this, Best Picture went to the painfully Shakespearean Hamlet, starring and directed by Laurence Olivier. While Hamlet 
has some very cool set pieces and utilizes some fantastically spooky camera tricks. It's two and a half hours of sonically soggy sonnets that make me want to dip my head in a vat of boiling oil. Say that. Soggily sonnet. Sonically soggy sonnets. Sonically? Like the restaurant? Uh huh. Sonic Burger? That's what you went to. <laughs> I was really looking forward to watching this movie before this show, but I did not. Treasure of the Sierra Madre? Oh. Yeah. That's a yeah. cool fact, you're, Hudson. You're, you're going to love it. <laughs> Treasure of uh, the Sierra Mom. Little, little tidbit. Meanwhile, Treasure of the Sierra Madre was one of the first Hollywood films to shoot off the studio lot, doing much of its yeah. filming in Mexico, and also going over schedule and over budget. It feels much different than so many movies of that era. It's a brutal take on character and hardship and trust. A truly remarkable film that should have taken home that stupid award. We talked about a movie in our last season, There Will Be Blood, and and my main criticism of that film was that it was about greed, but it didn't show us any sort of journey into greed. The main character right. started greedy, he acts greedy, the whole movie, and he ends greedy. There's no real change. Although, apparently, P.T. Anderson watched this movie every night before going to bed well, he while did, writing He didn't learn. He didn't learn anything from no, he it. Didn't. So, Treasure of the Sierra Madre has been called the greatest movie ever made about greed, and it works by avoiding that pitfall. Not only is Fred Dobbs not greedy when the movie starts, but he's actually a sympathetic character, mm-hmm. and, and you feel sorry for him. He has nothing. He's been taken advantage of constantly. So when he finally gets to t- gets a taste of wealth and doesn't want to let it go, we get it. We understand it. And it makes it all that much more heartbreaking that it gets into his head and warps him and turns him into what he becomes by the end of the film. And, and to watch him alongside two other characters who that doesn't happen to. Right. Um, two characters who are very pure of heart and oh, it's an amazing downward spiral. The movie too is, is an example of one of those situations where a, a random line gets picked out of the movie and becomes <laughs> super famous for reasons I still don't understand. Right. Remember what that line is? Yeah. Uh, Where's that we treasure, Madre? <laughs> is that the line? Uh, nope, nope. It's not it. Vatches. We ain't got no vouchers. We don't need no vouchers. I don't have to show you any stinking vouchers. Which is then used in Blazing Saddles, of course, maybe mm. most famously. And then after that, what movie is it in? Definitely a Chicken Chong movie, I would have to say. UHF. UHF. Oh, yeah. Badgers. That's right. Badgers is in UHF. Yeah. 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 Oh. Troop Beverly Hills. <laughs> About Girl Scout how, badges. How can I forget that? <laughs> but, uh, out of some, some of these lines come out of movies and That's they become crazy. just cultural touchstones. I, yeah, I, cultural I touchstones. And I don't understand why. I mean, there's probably a no hundred lines you could pick from this movie that are better than that. But right. America latched onto that one. For right, some reason. Right. It's the ending of this movie that really mm-hmm. has stuck with me ever since the first time I saw this movie. It was so unexpected and just I don't I don't even know how to describe it. It's easily top ten movie endings ever. Yep. It's phenomenal. Maybe you guys will watch it sometime. Yeah. yeah. Uh, it's black and white. So, I have not seen Treasure of the Sea at Madre. I have not seen Hamlet, the one best picture in 1948. But you know, I, would, I wouldn't bother with Hamlet. Yeah, I've heard it's sonically <laughs> soggy. <laughs> Sonnet. Swish. I heard that too. I hear that a lot. But I want to talk about another movie that I feel should have won in 1948, despite the fact that I haven't seen those movies. Because of its lasting impact, its influence on modern filmmakers, and what it was able to accomplish at its time, I want to talk about The Red Shoes. Diaries? <clears throat> <laughs> If you, David Duchovny going to show up in this? If you were 15 and, and had Cinemax, <laughs> you know, what that you know about the Red Shoes. 1992. Written, directed, and produced by Michael Power and Emmerich Pressburger. The Red Shoes is about a unique love triangle between three artists in the ballet world. 
a young ballerina named Vicky Page, a young composer named Julian Craster, and their more established director named Boris Lermontov. Lermontov all but guarantees Vicky that he can make her a great ballerina, and she lives to dance. When Lermontov asks her why she wants to dance, she responds with, why do you want to live? Craster and Vicky, meanwhile, fall in love, and she's torn between these two worlds. Ultimately leads to her dancing in the lead role of a ballet called The Red Shoes, based on the Hans Christian Andersen story. In one of the most visually arresting, fascinating, magical movie sequences of all time. Yeah, it's a 17-minute long ballet sequence in the middle of this movie. In the ballet, The Red Shoes, the ballet within the movie, um, is the story of a, of a dancer who receives a pair of magical red shoes from a shoemaker, which makes her a fantastic dancer, but she's unable to stop dancing. So ultimately leading to that character's death, which ends up being a metaphor for Vicky's own career in the film. It's a great exploration of what it means to be great at something, what kind of sacrifices it takes to make great art. The Red Shoes was... Lance, tell me if this fact is true, because I looked this up in a number of places, and it seems to be... Is the, it the fact that you can't be a fan of film unless you know Pelham Pressburger? Is that Sorry. your impression of Lance? That's my impression of Lance. I made a comment in our last <laughs> season that Gibby has just taken hold on. I didn't say that. What I said that was... No, here's what I said. I said all people who love film eventually find the movies of Powell and Pressburger. Okay. The Red <laughs> Shoes was the, num- the number one film in the U.S. in 1948, despite being released on only one theater. What? I've what? never I heard that. Think. Isn't How's that, that insane? How's that possible? And it ran for 110 weeks in this one theater. Which theater? I looked it up in a number of places. That's why I was going to ask you to verify, because it t- sounds totally not true and impossible, but I-, I read it in a number of places. You mean like I- the I highest mean, grossing film? Highest grossing film, yeah. I can't... They must have charged a lot to get in there every time. I mean, Hamlet was out. Hamlet. (laughs) Hamlet, for heaven's sakes. I think the more shocking thing to me there would be that it would only be released in one theater in the country. Now, it's not like it is now where there's like 3,000 screens. Well, it was a movie. It was, first of all, it was made in England. And so Mm -hmm. it didn't have, the U.S. distribution was only picked up in this one particular theater. And then two years later, Universal picked it up for a wider release. But in 1948, it was able to accomplish that in just the one theater. That would be shocking to me. That's that's really interesting. Um, See, it did play there for an unprecedented 110 weeks, but... doesn't say anything about it being weeks. the highest grossing movie of the year. Oh. Love, love, love this movie. I picked Powell and Pressburger as the director I featured in our uh, One Director, three, uh, three Movies episode last season. Except it was really t- kind of two directors. Yeah, well, <laughs> Pressburger wasn't over that. And Red Shoes is a big reason why they're among my favorite filmmakers. Roger Ebert uh, included Red Shoes in his great movies list, and he said, you don't watch this movie, you bathe in it. And I'd agree, because visually, you get done with this, and I want to live in this movie. And, and I want to take a bath. <laughs> <laughs> It's a film that cuts between the story of the ballet they're telling and how their real life ends up mirroring the story of the ballet. And, and you guys, you, you kind of said this already, but that, that's what I, I had in my notes here. It's it's among the greatest scenes ever committed to film, that 17-minute yeah. ballet. So mm-hmm. It is absolutely incredible. Yeah, and, and, and an interesting choice because it's it uses some camera tricks and some double exposure right. and things that obviously the audience sitting in that theater could have never come anywhere close to have seen. And so right. for... It took me a few minutes to be okay with that. I wanted to experience this great ballet the way that the audience hmm. would have experienced yeah. it. Yeah, but um, it's but more so you're entering into this kind of magical right. version of and the it, story. It right. swept me away after a few minutes, and I, I was yeah. real glad they did it. The way so, they did. and then uh, it was nominated for best picture, editing, and screenplay, and it won best Academy Award for score and art direction. The art direction was by first time art director who was traditionally a painter, and so it was like his paintings mm. in that, that's very, not, that one. That's not 
surprising. Yeah. It looks it looks very painted. And I think yeah. that's what gives it a lot of its beauty. And not not just like the ballet scenes. The the opening scene where there are these kids running into the the balcony. To <laughs> Which, watch by the way, ballet. have you ever seen like young people be that excited about a ballet? <laughs> <I know>. <laughs> They're <laughs> like jumping yeah. over each other. And well, then you find yeah. other composers and things like yeah. that. But uh, but those are some Even, of the most painterly <laughs> shots I've ever seen. And they're just people sitting in in chairs. And it's yeah. it's very yeah. Um, I have to say, in fairness, I've never seen that particular version of Hamlet. I'm sure it's great, but Hamlet's a story we've heard a hundred times. I don't, I can't, I'd be surprised if they did anything that unique and amazing with it and made it better than the Red Shoes. I'm pretty sure it's Nothing. that particular version of Hamlet that in Billy Madison, Eric uh, does his Hamlet. His Hamlet. Yeah, or I think, I think that, that might have been taken from the Shakespeare version. <laughs> <laughs> no, he was, he was doing Hamlet. He was doing, he was doing, he was, he was doing Lawrence Oliver. Yeah, yeah. Lawrence Oliver. Larry Oliver. Yeah, old layers. One other thing, the cinematography in this movie, they play with shadows in a way that mesmerized me. From one of the first shots where there's a dude just coming down the staircase and then there's, in the, in that 17-minute sequence when she's dancing, there's this shadow play of this giant shadow on the stage like trying to grab her. And it's mm. Every turn of this movie is so beautiful yep, and fantastic. creative. So for those of you into shadows, <laughs> give, me, give me number two. All right, so my number two pick is from the year 1994. And I chose the Shawshank Redemption, which lost to Forrest Gump. Before you start, let me ask you this. Have you only seen this on TV? I've actually seen the real version of okay. this. And the whole thing. Well, not, so this first, might be the movie that's... Half. Other than Bloodsport, this might be the movie that's on TV more yeah, than any other. Yeah. I, I saw it on Vichess. Um, I think it's called Vis. <laughs> Vis. <laughs> so, I, you know, part of me thinks that 1994 was a great year. And I think when people look back on defining years of cinema, 94 will probably rank up there with 77, 39, a few other years. I think other than 39, it is the best year of film. It's ridiculous. The movie. Other than 77? Yeah. Yeah. So this was the year of... Hold on, oh. I got to Google all these years, you guys. <laughs> this is, this is People are listening of, right now, like, what the hell are they talking about? <laughs> so you're a Pulp Fiction, you're Johnny uh, Depp kind of black, black and white. We're talk, what's funny is we're talking like everybody gets this. We're like, 77 yeah. made 68 look like 52. <laughs> People are like, God, uh, these guys have got to get a life. Real quick about Forrest Gump. I love Forrest Gump. I think it's a great movie. I think it kind of revolutionized well what Zemeckis did in that changed the way people made movies from there going forward with his use of digital so you don't have to create fake looking animals around the way he just brought everything together and that made it all look real I mean it's really amazing in 1994 for him to do that I don't remember a lot no, of animals like I remember the first digital things were like not in Forrest Gump I'm sorry <laughs> I just meant you could do you could do more with <laughs> do you, you could do, do more you need right? to retract everything <laughs> you just said. He showed that you can Are do you more with Jumanji CGI. now. Yeah. Was that 94? Jumanji? You can do more with CGI. <laughs> so was Jumanji your pick or what's which movie are we talking about? Did you think Jumanji and Forrest Gump were the same movie? <laughs> <laughs> Did you think Jumanji no, was, was directed saying... by Robert Zemeckis? <laughs> okay, so prior to Forrest Gump, people had used CGI movies to create digital animals. And Jurassic kind of Park. Like, like Jurassic Park or uh, Jumanji. I think Zemeckis was one of the first ones to use it just in, the, in a more realistic in the flow, yeah. flow of the oh, movie. Oh, okay. Like with Dan's legs or Forrest Gump. Yeah, 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 yeah. JFK. Him. Forrest Gump comes up, and I had a feeling we were going to hit 1994 with one of these movies because people often look at this year and, and call Forrest Gump one of the movies that shouldn't have won. I'm with you, Gib. I love Forrest Gump. I, it's easy to understand, though, like when you look at the other films, why people were frustrated that it won. I, the problem is that there's been a lot of Gump backlash, and, and I, I think it's because it suffered from some saturation. The I myself, restaurant didn't help. I got yeah. tired. The what? <laughs> the, the restaurant. restaurant. Well, Gump yeah, person. I got tired of seeing Bubble Grump shrimp. I still, I still get annoyed when I hear people go. Bubble Grump? Is that what I said? <laughs> 
<laughs> Clearly, I didn't read any of them. <laughs> but like, I still get annoyed hearing people say Gen A. Like that, those yeah. impressions just yeah. get annoying. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When you look at the film on its own merit and take it out of how like mainstream it became, it, it's a wonderful film. Yeah. That yeah. being said, it, it's it's hard not it's hard to argue against Shawshank for that year. And and Shawshank is interesting to me because it's had such a strange path to where it is now. I don't remember that year that many people talking about it. No, like when it was nominated, people were like, "What is this movie?" Right. And so then then one day you look on IMDb and it's the number two film of all yeah. time, like yeah. a hit, like like right behind The Godfather. I read the original short story. Yeah, oh, I read that uh, late last year. Incredible. So really? incredible. Yeah. So good. And I think Darabont does an amazing job of capturing it on film. I, I agree. This is this is one of just a handful of times when a Stephen King story is taken and made into an amazing movie. Right. Uh, it's very rare that that happens, and this one really doesn't. I, mm. I, I love this movie. I'm going to disagree, though, on that it should have won. I think this movie is amazing, but to me, the, the creativity and the world creating of Forrest Gump, I think, justifies that choice. Shawshank is a movie that I seems like I would not like. I just, prison movies as a genre, if that's a genre, I can't stand that stuff. I've, I've been to a prison. Don't you I've, love The Rock? You've, you've, wait, just, you've been to a prison. I, I was like, I was like, um, it's whatever. I've been in <laughs> wait, a prison before. To me. I don't want to gloss over this. What, what are you saying? To me, pri- pri- prison. It's a good thing we're partners with him. We don't know that he's been in prison. Were you before. in prison? I was not in prison. I was like a counselor. I was like a teenager and I did like ministry Drugs stuff. Hang I was on. A counselor I'm sorry. In a they sent prison. teenagers in to counsel hardened criminals. Was, we didn't actually. They were just giving us a tour to prepare us for one day potentially doing <laughs> Being that. In jail. It's just so. How many know, people whatever. did you lead out of a life of crime? None. No. I didn't talk to a criminal. I just saw them from afar. <laughs> Sounds like it was really productive. Uh, yeah. <laughs> Anyways, anyway, go ahead. My point was that uh, prison is just the most depressing place on earth to me. I mean, just being held captive like that. And this movie certainly paints a picture of it being absolutely awful. But it's that absolutely gorgeous ending of this movie yeah. that is mm-hmm. so beautiful and so. I mean, so the final fifteen minutes are just. Yeah. Incredible. Yeah. Are you crying? <laughs> yes. Are you okay? When he when he uh, gets out of the sewer line and the music swells and the rain comes down, it's just all shot like that. That's one of the most oh, it's incredible, me, it's yeah. emotional, yeah. incredible. And you that feel shot, it. You feel like you're there. That yeah. shot was not originally planned. Really? Something happened. I wish I could remember right now. How Something you accidentally get a shot. But they didn't accidentally get it. It wasn't that wasn't the planned shot. Like, what that, are you doing with was, the camera? Why are you what, what, up yeah, in the what, air? what happened was uh, Tim Robbins did that every day on set. He would just call. <laughs> that was kind of a prep thing for him. And Darabont's like, "Grab a camera, grab a camera, get that." No, I I should I should have looked up the story beforehand. But that was like a, a plan B. I don't remember what the the original shot was going to be. But a little shout out to the score by Thomas Newman. Wonderful score. How did we get to that segment without doing a uh, Morgan Freeman impression? I don't know. <laughs> All right, Lance, you're number two. It was called The Epic That's As Big As Texas. It starred Rock Hudson, Elizabeth Taylor, James Dean, and Dennis Hopper. The American Film Institute had it number 82 on its list of the 100 greatest American films. It was nominated for 10 Oscars, and then it lost to Around the World in 80 Days, which no one has ever seen. The movie is giant, George Stevens' 1956 classic, and perhaps no movie has ever been more appropriately named. Maybe... Titanic or Batman, those are pretty accurate names for movies. <laughs> anyway, Giant tells the multi-generational story of the Benedicts, a family of wealthy Texas cattle ranchers, documenting their struggles internally with a rival oil tycoon and with the changing times themselves. I love Giant, and I have to admit I'm partial to epics, to long movies that take you on a journey and allow you to immerse yourself in them. Um, it's a masterfully told story that tells us the tale of this family, but more interesting than that, it tells us the story of the ever-changing culture around them. It's often thought of as a movie about Texas, but it's really a film about America, as 
because it deals with universal themes of conflict. A father who can't understand why his son doesn't want to follow in his footsteps. A woman who marries into a family and struggles to find her place in it. A poor man who strikes her rich and exacts revenge on those he feels have wronged him only to destroy himself. A son who must deal with his parents' disapproval of both his career and his wife. The film jumps around between so many fascinating storylines, hence the three hour and 21 minute runtime. There's so much to cover, but it never drags or feels cumbersome. I find myself fascinated from start to finish. Now, why did Giant lose to Around the World in 80 Days? The answer is simple. I don't f- no. <laughs> this is one of the more perplexing decisions in Oscar history. Around the World in 80 Days often shows up on lists of worst best picture winners, and it's a film that's largely been forgotten. It's not terrible, but it's a very forgettable. And not only that, but Giant is the kind of film Oscar usually likes. Social issues, deep character studies, etc. But for one year, I guess they decided they liked a movie about a guy hopping in a balloon and doing a 360 around the planet. <laughs> it looks so ridiculous, but it won a ton of stuff mm-hmm. Around the World in 80 Days. Yeah. Editing, cinematography. I mean, it's pretty fast to get around the world. Screenplay, Overgiant. I look at the poster and the the thing that immediately pops in my mind is, zoinks! (laughs) It just looks silly. It's like a guy hanging out of a balloon. Is it not a comedy? It is. I guess because it it was such an epic for that time of, you know, yeah. big film. Yeah. I mean, Giant's epic. That's, is that what I you're mean, talking huge. about? Even the Giant's word. huge. Yeah. <laughs> Giant I've is seen, very large. I've seen about 60% 30 minutes. of Giant. You've seen no. 60% of it. Yeah. It's three hours and 21 minutes I've long. seen Giant. I like it. Yeah. I loved this movie. Yeah, I was I was probably a teenager and I was on a James Dean kick, so I watched like all of his movies in like one week. And, this took and, most and of it. loved all three of them. Yeah, this took most of it. I thought, yeah, I, I love this movie and I think it's probably pretty great that he died so young because absolutely otherwise yeah. he thank would god not he, yeah thank god yeah. he got killed <laughs> it's a horrible thing to say it is what? but it's, it's the same argument i see what you're saying about Jimi hendrix or or some other people that right like, it's, they would have um, all been carlos santana and we don't want james uh, oh. dean to be carlos santana <laughs> so you're saying if only santana had died <laughs> then everybody would be like oh my god santana's the best band ever it is fascinating to think what would have happened had james dean lived longer yeah. like what brando would he, he would have gotten like old and he, fat and or he could have been paul newman I mean, there's, I don't, you don't have to. I think he would have been more so, Brando. Yeah. I think they he, have a similar acting style. He would have gotten cranky and he'd keep winning Oscars and not show up to get them, but he'd send some social <laughs> yeah. message. He would have found yeah. a way to ruin himself. Yeah. <laughs> Could you imagine like overweight James Dean? <laughs> Wouldn't work. No. He's still got awesome hair, but he's just huge. But it's hard to imagine 30 year old James Dean. Yeah. So. Yeah. And and he did. He died right uh, during the making of this, or right afterwards. Was this his last film? I think so. Okay. Yeah, because yeah. I believe they had to. Some of his. They said they recorded some of his dialogue was so unintelligible that they brought someone else in after he died in order to fix some of his lines. Well, fortunately, uh-huh. fortunately, Forrest Gump had come out, so they could do CGI <laughs> and, and fix some so of that for all the animals. In the sure, movie. sure. Yeah, gap. there's not one real horse in this movie. It's all CGI. <laughs> I have wondered if because that's him on the on the poster for Giant, right? That's mm-hmm. James Dean. Mm-hmm. Yeah, is he the main character in this movie? No, he's a right. supporting character. Rock Hudson uh, plays the main role. So I've always wondered if it was because he died that he that he's so much attached to it. Well, I think he was a bigger actor at the, even at this point than Rock Hudson oh, was. Okay. So I think they and used Elizabeth him in the Taylor? marketing materials. Not Elizabeth Taylor so much. Right. Correct me if I'm wrong, but isn't there a there's kind of a time jump in this, right? Where where James Dean's character is older at some point. Um, yeah, no, just, it's it's no. If you'd been listening to my review, Hudson, I said multi-generational film. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It, no, it, I yeah, remember it covers, his makeup being distracting. Yeah, yeah. he doesn't really. Yeah, look it, back then they were hadn't quite mastered makeup yeah. in a yeah. lot of cases. Well, but yeah, Forrest Gump hadn't come out yet. <laughs> yep, he could have done it. Uh, J- Jordan, Jordan. Jordan. Oh, that's my name. Somebody it's said like my name. Did, like, it was like you didn't know there was someone on the show named Jordan. 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 Oh, Jordan. <laughs> In 1963, director Stanley Kubrick named my previous pick, The Treasure of Sierra Madre, as his fourth 
favorite film of all time. Eight years later, he made my number two pick, A Clockwork Orange. And the world had never seen anything quite like it, and perhaps it hasn't still. Kubrick creates a uniquely dystopian near future filled with oddities and wonders that are cartoonishly terrifying. A Clockwork Orange is as fun as it is gut-wrenchingly disturbing. As it tells the story of Alex DeLarge and his similar group of droogs who occupy their time with ultraviolence, effectively raping and pillaging their community and the countryside surrounding. That's literal, by the way, yes. raping and pillaging. Yes. He is eventually caught in an act of murder and volunteers for a new experimental therapy to cure him of his deplorable proclivities. Masterfully employing the strange slang of the original novel, Kubrick makes his clockwork world even more fascinating and alien. Yet somehow we can easily follow along despite the strange language. And the music, oh, the music. <laughs> Wendy Carlos, then known as Walter Carlos, interesting story there that I won't go into. Walter Carlos Santana. <laughs> <laughs> Played largely Beethoven compositions for the score, but on a Moog synthesizer, a remarkably recent <clears throat> musical instrument. But perhaps this new Orange World was too much for the Academy. Nominated for four awards, Director, Best Picture, Editing, and Screenplay, it took home none of them. Wow. Instead, Best Picture went to The French Connection. Now, to be fair, William Friedkin's French Connection is a phenomenally gritty and exciting police movie. Maybe even the best cop movie ever. But it pales to the world creation, the social commentary, the pure, challenging, and thought-provoking power of A Clockwork Orange. Although to some, A Clockwork Orange was too powerful. After a handful of supposed copycat clockwork crimes and several death threats to the Kubricks, the director effectively banned the movie in the UK until after his death in 1999. He banned it? Yeah. So he was filming Barry Lyndon in Ireland. And he got a call that they'd received a bunch of death threats, uh, apparently, like, to him in Ireland. As, like, they were just going to... Wow. Like, and so he asked Warner Brothers to to shut it down, and so it, it wasn't screened or available to purchase hmm. uh, for 28 years. Irish ruin everything. I don't think it was Irish people that were threatening him. I think it was British people. Um, but pretty... I don't, I don't know of another time that a filmmaker was... Like, like shut her down. Yeah. Shut her down, boys. And I think it probably added to the to the cult mystique, the cultishness it, yeah. in in England of it. It was available here. It actually played at a theater in New York, I think, for fifteen months straight. This is one of those movies. I, I saw this. I thought it was fine. It's just it's a great movie. It's not one that I would revisit over and over again. But this is one that you kind of don't like it as much because of the people that like it. You know what I mean? <laughs> that's, so, that's so true. Like Tarantino movies, like Jordan. Right. Like it's a fil- it's a film that like kind of douchey, obnoxious people like. Well, I, I hate. To, I'm, I'm sorry. Gonna, I know that sound. I'm gonna. I'm no, gonna go take I, a Jordan, walk. Jordan, I like it too. I like it too. <laughs> right, but, but you start I, to yeah, th- you so. start to think that those people miss the point of the movie and they exactly. glorify the parts exactly. that are supposed to not be. Glorified. They like right. it because it's shocking. Yeah. They don't really get the point of it. Um, I get done watching this movie and I'm I'm never sure what I'm supposed to feel. Is it pity for this kid? Is it horror and disgust that society is let him loose again and then and kind of what the conclusion i come to is that's exactly the point i mean right. it's it, it's it's an unwinnable situation this is one of the strangest films i've ever seen and when it starts i just i can't take my eyes off of it yeah, it's and amazing. you know i'm horrified at parts i'm laughing at other parts but if there's one thing kubrick knew how to do it was to make you keep your eyes on that screen mm-hmm. this is kind of a toss-up for me i'm the more film dork of me wants to go with clockwork orange but i do love french connection i think clockwork like you said was kind of hurt by how shocking and controversial it was but you know people were watching a genius at work they didn't quite understand what they were watching and i can i can understand why i mean i think they were watching a genius 
genius at work with with Friedkin as well. Oh, they were. I, I they think were. French Connection is, is a very unique. It is. It film. is. But if you held this vote again today, a Clockwork Orange wins. Yeah, oh, I think so too. And I, but that's I don't judge it by today. Like I'm I'm trying to take time out of it. Yeah. So it's following and it's cult love. I try to not let affect my list at all. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. I just think that a Clockwork Orange is is so unique. Yeah. And and so challenging. It's interesting what you say about you're not sure how to feel at the end. Yeah. And the book actually has an extra chapter that isn't covered in the movie where Alex DeLarge, it, the therapy's all over and everything, but he decides on his own will to be good. Hmm. And I think Kubrick just, he didn't want to answer it for you. He wanted to to leave you wondering. And to me, that makes it much more interesting. Yeah, this both of these films, when you look at it, it's interesting both of them were nominated that year. And it shows you that in a, a lot of times, Oscar you know, kind of reflects what's going on in the culture at that time. It's not, a, it's not a coincidence that you had two gritty, kind of hopeless films coming out right at the same time when you look at where the country was at that point. Mm-hmm. I believe it was 72? The awards were in 72, but yeah. the movies were 71. Sorry, so 71. So, I mean, that, that was when America was in its kind of, you know, you know Watergate, Vietnam, Vietnam mm-hmm. stuff was going on era where people were starting to distrust the government. So this film, these were films that spoke to a lot of people about yeah. how the world really works. Now, one of one of the most fascinating things to me about a Clockwork Orange is, is the the play of of fun against the violence. A bit um, of the old ultra violence. So and, and, and the, there's so many quotes and yeah. it's, it's incredible. But there's a lot of I guess stock footage, footage that Kubrick didn't shot in different parts and and it's but it's up against, like there's shots of Nazis and and. And World War II, and it's put up against this like goofy electronic music, mm-hmm. and it makes the Nazis look ridiculous, and it makes you have all these really interesting feelings. But I think the most powerful use of this in this movie is the song from a musical that Lance loves that yeah. Alex DeLarge sings. Yeah, that probably ruins "Singing in the Rain" for <laughs> it didn't for it didn't ruin it for it didn't ruin it for me. I think it may have for some people, but it's yeah. And it's, I've heard people say that it, it has, but the story behind it is incredible. This is not in the book, and it's not it wasn't in the script. So they shot for three days or rehearsed for three days this scene it's it's actually i mean it, it sounds crazy it's the second rape scene in 13 minutes in the beginning of the mm. film i mean it's just brutal alex delarge starts singing singing in the rain in the, in the final version but they rehearsed it for three days and that was not in it and kubrick was like this isn't this isn't working i don't like this so he went up to malcolm mcdowell who plays alex delarge and he said you know, do you know, do you know any songs? And Malcolm said, I know Singing in the Rain. That's really the only song I, I know. <laughs> Is and Malcolm McDowell an idiot? You just not ever listened to any <laughs> Never heard a song yeah. before. Yeah. Uh, but I never like, listened to music. But like off the top of your head, you know, be able to like know the words to a song. And he knew that one for whatever, because he's a weirdo. <laughs> My number one, Crouching Tiger, Hidden Dragon. The year is 2000, and Gladiator won, which we all know how I feel about Gladiator. I think we it's all awesome. know how we it's all awesome. feel about it, except for Gibby. <laughs> I mean, we know how Gibby feels if, about it. It's just wrong. okay with it. If like you Gladiator. had watched our overrated episode, 
listen to. You don't watch this so much. <laughs> you just watch the little bar yeah. go by. <laughs> so, I mean, this one's a little bit of a difficult one, only because Crouching Tiger, I do think it should have won Best Picture, but it did get a lot of attention, including winning Best Foreign Language Film, as it's a foreign language film. So it did kind of get what it deserved. I just think it's such a better film than Gladiator. It's really held on a lot better than Gladiator now today. So, directed by Ang Lee, follows two older warriors in 1700s China, Li Mu Bai and Yu Shu Lin, who are secretly in love with each other. Mu Bai asks Shu Lin to deliver his sword, the Green Destiny, to their friend so he can retire from his warrior lifestyle. On the under- other end of the romantic spectrum is young love between between a bandit named Lo and a governor's daughter named Jin, who is also secret learning her fighting skills from the Jade Fox who killed Mubai's master. Whew, still following me? I'm with you. Um, so it's a complicated story. I'm lost and I've seen this movie. <laughs> <laughs> but it, it's it's a complicated story, but it's a, it's a movie, like we mentioned about, what we were talking about that you just disappear into. Oh, Fellowship of the Ring. Mm-hmm. Uh, it's a movie that you just disappear into. It's this, it's this magical world, but it also feels so grounded emotionally. It's a martial arts action film it's a romance epic and it's a deeply emotional drama all wrapped into one it is the highest grossing foreign language film in u.s history wow in u.s history there are strange stat (laughs) yeah you mean i I think it made more money than than any any other film ever has yes Uh, there are some years when I'm watching Oscars and you know I'm like only this movie can win if this movie doesn't win I am upset I'm out of here yeah, I am I'm upset. never watching you again I am next writing, year I am writing the yeah, Oscars I'm writing you Oscars <laughs> I'm writing a letter uh, then there are other years dear where Oscar. I'd be okay with the couple that win and <laughs> I'm writing a dear Oscar letter yeah <laughs> <laughs> My dear Oscar would have been, uh, please let Crouching Tiger or Gladiator to win. So I was, I was pleased at that. Yeah, you were saying you would have picked this one had I not beat you. Yeah, I would have picked. But Crouching you love Tiger. Gladiator. I do love Gladiator. That's how much you I just love, love Crouching this Tiger. More. Hidden wow. Dragon. This is one of those movies that I get done watching and I say I am so thankful this movie exists. Yeah. Um, Ang, Ang Lee has had a career that can only be described as bizarre. He's mm-hmm. done so many different types of films. You know, a couple that were kind of man, I've loved a lot of his movies, but this is just the crown jewel of his filmography. You bring an interesting point up, Hudson. It's got this weird mixture of really absurd silliness and grounded beauty. It's like a kung fu movie if you take away the silliness and just interject every shot with incredible beauty. He brings so many elements together to tell this story about love and loss. And the most interesting element to me is this story about mentorship, right. how he tries to take this girl under her wing, how she's rebellious. That that interplay was fascinating to me. It, it's perplexing to me that the Academy chose this over Gladiator, not because I hate Gladiator, but th- this is just such a, for lack of a better word, a smarter film. Yeah, It seems to stroke that intellectual arrogance that the Academy loves to flaunt in the films it chooses. And, and this, this decision completely went against that. Instead, they picked the big sword and sandals epic which would have made sense in 1950 but not so much now yeah especially not the mtv version of that with gladiator it's not an mtv version i don't know i Ridiculous. hope if crouching tiger came out in 1950 it would have blown everything away <laughs> yeah those men are flying <laughs> those guys are flying through the air how'd they do that <laughs> this was very different for ang lee i mean even now because he hasn't done another movie well, like you can it. say yeah. that about all of his movies yeah, though. that's true. what's so weird about ang lee yeah. he's never done anything he like just that did again. a war movie yeah. this year but. yeah yeah this is a fantastic pick uh interesting story about crouching tiger hidden dragon i was a writer on our college paper <laughs> i was gonna say he was a writer on the film like, <laughs> i was what? a writer what? On the film. <laughs> yeah wow. you know that <laughs> yeah at age 22 i was writing crouching tiger hidden dragon i knew mandarin very well <laughs> <laughs> i was a writer for the babbler lipscomb's lipscomb university's uh, paper and the quibbler. I wrote, I wrote, yeah, the, the quibbler, the babbler. 
uh, wrote for a wrote movie review section, and people loved it. And one of the things was win a date with Gibby. And so uh, some females around the school wrote in why they'd win a date, and they picked the <laughs> they picked the winner. And we went and watched Crouching wow. Tiger, Hidden Dragon. Wow. And I wrote about it and the date. The article I'll have to bring it next time. Yes, yeah, please. Cool. Yeah. Should have wow. brought it this time. Yeah. I love this movie, and I couldn't agree more that it should have won over that silly sword and sandal. I think you. It had won best foreign picture, so that it would have been. That's, that's why, why it did not. That's win. why yeah. I didn't win. People felt like, well, we get I, because that's just. It, we're not saying that's a good reason. It's just that's how they justified it. Like, well, we gave it this. Let's give an American right. film that I don't know. Keep All right, Gibby, your number one. Guys, I don't think we could have done this podcast without bringing up the biggest injustice of all time in the Academy Awards. You mean this episode or this whole podcast? Just, just four friends fight about film. We couldn't have done it without this greatest particular injustice. thing. Okay. Are you assuming that we all, all agree time. on this thing? I'm assuming that the world agrees with Gibby. Okay. Let's the get year, into it. See, see how we feel. The year was a good year. Young Gibby came into the world. <laughs> <laughs> Jimmy Carter was president. There was a gas shortage, probably. But not once you, you, you arrive. Yeah. Sounds like something. <laughs> What else happened this year? <laughs> Guys, Star Wars was released. Star Wars. That is my number one pick for biggest Oscar loser. What but it it's a winner. Too. It lost to Annie Hall. Woody Allen's perfect, probably pinnacle Whiny. of his career. <laughs> no, it's yeah, wines, but it's a good movie, right? It's, 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 it's a perfect. It's a good movie. It's about perfect. perfect as a comedy. It's very absurd and yet funny and emotional. But it's, so it's no got Star all Wars. the things that you want. It's got all the things you want in a comedy. It's just the wrong year, Woody. Right now, Star Wars, I think, is is my number one pick. Do I have to explain it? Yeah. Sure. All right. Uh, it follows a young <laughs> blonde kid who learns he might be special and joins his Did forces. You call a young blonde kid? <laughs> yeah. <laughs> he joins the blonde. The, that's what. He, that's how most people refer to him. The blonde Yo, Jedi. Yo, Luke blonde. <laughs> young blonde kid named Luke. Uh, last name something like Skywalker. Uh, he joins forces with a rogue scoundrel, an old dude with a cool accent, a hairy thing, and then a princess, and they fight bad guys. So that's what happens in this movie. I'm, Sounds I'm not, like an I need Oscar to say winner. real quick. I, I am ashamed that we are approaching a film like Star Wars like this. I, I just, I, I mean, first of all, I feel like we could do a whole episode just about Star Wars yeah, and what absolutely. it means to us. Yeah. We can't. The fact that we have given it um, that description, um, and we're—I don't know—I just feel like we need to. Feel like oh, yeah. You describe like it better. Irreverent. I feel like we're being irreverent here. I don't yeah. know. One of us is. Uh huh. <laughs> Anyway, this this losing, I mean, it literally, it drove me crazy for like 10 to 12 years. As Once I got old enough to be cognizant, because I what, wasn't what? in 1977. <laughs> Try to figure out the timeline. 1988, Gibby learned the truth yeah. about what happened in 1977. Then for the next 12 years until 2000, he was angry and upset. And then you made your peace with it? Then I, made, I watched Annie Hall and I was like, oh, it's, it's good. But I mean, it's no Star Wars. And I just, at, at some point, I eventually learned that Oscars aren't the end all be all. It's okay. That that's, it and that's a great picture. lesson to learn. Very good lesson, Gibby. It took me uh, 17, 24 years. I think it was. I think it was worth Star Wars losing for you to learn that lesson. (laughs) (laughs) And also, I mean, Star Wars was such a you know new type of thing at this time. It's not traditionally the type of movie that would get you know nominated or make that much money or any other. I'm surprised that it was nominated in the first place, and Mm -hmm. I wonder if it's just because it was such a phenomenon with audiences that you know that lines around the block it, it goes yeah, back that was definitely something. it goes back to what I was saying about Fellowship of the Ring it, there are certain genres and I think I, I pinpointed sci-fi in talking about that is certain genres that just they've got to do way way more and it sometimes it doesn't matter what they do they're just not going to win I actually disagree I don't think the Star Wars should have won 
Star Wars, for the record, Star Wars is my favorite movie, hands down. I'm trying to figure out how you reconcile these two statements, but keep going. It being my favorite doesn't mean it should have won the Oscar. See, this is the problem with Oscar, though. So so Oscar voters feel like they have to pick the art house intellectual right. film. And, and, and what they fail to consider is that thoughtful intellectual films don't have to be restricted to dramas and Woody Allen movies. I think Annie Hall is perfect. I mean, I I adore Annie Hall, and I'm still blown away by it every time I watch it. And I th- I think that I think that technically it's a better movie than Star Wars is. Star mm. Wars is my favorite. Star Wars is not perfect, and I think that Annie Hall is. And I, as a grown ass man who loves Star Wars more than anything, <laughs> grown str- ass man, <laughs> was is strong enough to admit that Annie Hall, technically speaking, is a is a better film than Star Wars. I, I see. I, I understand the argument you're making. It's this notion we talked about in a previous episode where it's if you have to judge a film on the merits of what it's trying to do. Mm-hmm. And if you're in, in I, I can understand why someone would argue Annie Hall did what it was trying to do better than Star Wars did what it was trying to do. Now, then there's another question is, is what Star Wars was trying to do more interesting than what Annie Hall was trying to do? And I think that's why Star Wars has become the popular juggernaut that it's become, whereas Annie Hall is kind of like, a lot of people haven't seen Annie Hall. Pop culture craves a Star Wars a lot more than it does on Annie Hall. Right, I mean, Star Wars is probably the biggest pop culture moment of our lifetime. Oh, easily. And, um, the, and it didn't win. That's not what the award's Although, for. Not my is lifetime. it is it perfect? <laughs> I, you know, I don't know. I mean, I, I guess it's pretty close. Uh, it, it's it's pretty close. If it's not, it's it, sure. I mean, it, I there's, think there's I think realistically, I don't know that there's such a thing as a perfect movie. I mean, yeah, it, there, I think there, there are a couple. There are movies that that are certainly closer to the mark than others. I think for what Star Wars was trying to do, it nailed it. it its storytelling is brilliant, and, and yeah. Lucas went back to to you know Joseph Campbell, the original mm-hmm. mythology master, and learned from him. Yeah. And so its storytelling is not just bubblegum kid stuff. It is it is legit, intelligent, well structured, well layered plot. I, um, I don't disagree. I know you're not arguing with me. I'm just saying, you know, I, I, I don't know that I, I mean, I understand it perfect. Uh, that's a tricky word to use, but I, I think it's pretty close if not. Okay. So I'm looking at this list of the, the best pictures from 1977. There's these movies I've never seen, never really heard of, and they were Im- important movies in their time though. So I feel like, I feel like what we're doing here today is Pointless and stupid. <laughs> <laughs> it's easy to say, oh, that movie didn't have legs. It didn't have lasting power. It didn't stay around. That's only one component of what makes a movie great, though. And it mm-hmm. enters the kind of conversation. But there's lots of movies that are amazing that are kind of forgotten about that could be just as fantastic and deserving as these we're movies we're talking about. We're also talking about our demographic. We're talking, like, we're talking about four right. white dudes I, in their I, 30s. I, who, think, like, I, yeah, I, I agree. Generally speaking, I don't agree with you. You can find specific examples, I think, but I think the better a film is, the more likely it is. I think there is a correlation there. I think there is. I just don't think it's all... I don't think that correlation is the entire There's thing. exceptions to everything, certainly. I mean, you can find examples of anything. There are just so many movies made, not all of them are going to continue to be talked about. And there's certain reasons that they may be, which, you know, might be they talk about a certain subject matter or they featured a certain director or actor who's still around versus one that's not. I mean, there's all kinds of mm-hmm. things that go into that. I've gone back and watched a lot of these films that have kind of been forgotten. And in many cases, there is a reason they're forgotten. They just they don't hold up as well. Maybe. Maybe. All right. So we right. talked about Star Wars finally. Oh, After it. 14 episodes. Got to be honest. Felt like a little bit of a letdown. <laughs> <laughs> well, when yeah. we do our episode of best sci-fi movie and we all pick Star Wars for all three, yeah. then we'll really... Yeah. I will. Really, at that I time, we'll really get into it. I was just saying that yeah. was an No, that was good. 
Lance, number one. L.A. Confidential, Curtis Hansen's 1997 movie, tells the story of three policemen in 1950s Los Angeles investigating a series of homicides against the backdrop of the film industry and a police department plagued by corruption. If I had to make a list of the top 10 films of the 90s, L.A. Confidential would definitely be on it. This is a film I love more and more with every viewing. When you talk about films taking you to different eras and cultures, the ones that stick with you most are the ones that take you into cultures you don't want to leave when the film is over. And for me, Hollywood, at the height of the big studio era, is one of those times in places. Whenever I get asked that question, if you had to live in another place in time, what would it be? That's what I pick. Mm -hmm. What what makes the film work is the three personalities playing off each other. Kevin Spacey's lovable sleaziness, Russell Crowe's morally driven brutality, and Guy Pearce's by-the-book intellectual. It's impossible for any viewer to watch these three characters without either seeing something they relate to or something they wish they could relate to. This was clearly the best film that came out in 1997. Metacritic has it ranked as the number two film of that year. I think I just made a contradictory statement there. uh, Number one was a movie called Mabarossi and no one's ever heard of it so suck it Mabarossi <laughs> it has an 8.3 on IMDb what if Mabarossi's listening he's, he's probably not or she it has an 8.3 on IMDb a 99% on Rotten Tomatoes so what happened Titanic, the bane of my existence. <laughs> Not a coincidence, this was also one of the films I selected on our overrated episode last season. By every conceivable measure, it was an inferior film, and yet it still won. And this goes back to my frustration with how schizophrenic Oscar is. In 1997, Titanic was the mainstream popular pick, and it's impossible to deny that it had a major hand in influencing the win here. Some years that matters to the Academy, popularity. Some years it doesn't. And again, time has to pass and bear out the film that was more deserving. And here's another example where time has overridden the Academy's original choice. This is a fantastic movie. It's one of my favorites of the 90s. Easy in the top five. Uh, I saw it in college and was just blown away. And I can't think of another performance where someone just burst into the consciousness and onto the screen like mm-hmm. Russell Crowe Russell did in Crow. this movie. He really I mean, did. Was, I was like, this guy's my favorite actor of all it's time. It's one of the coolest characters <laughs> I've ever seen in a movie. It really is. And that may be my love for Gladiator because the only confidential sets set it, it set up. Away. Yeah. I, uh, I saw this movie when it came out. I, I barely remember anything about it. It's wow. funny you say that because I had the same experience with it and a few years later I went back and watched it and I fell in love with oh, really? it. Yeah, oh, I, I, it was one of those it was one of those I had to rewatch. I well, have the same experience. I've seen it twice. I saw it, I think, in the theater and then I saw it years later and and i liked it and but i can't remember anything about it and so i I actually just bought it again but unfortunately uh, i didn't have time to watch it before my uh well i was thinking about it and i was like oh wait it was like i didn't just watch this yesterday like we're at the age now where like movies we watched in college are 20 years ago (laughs) like it's pretty long time ago when i saw this um you know, I'll say Play this, that. though. Titanic came, I think it has something to do with when it came, where it was kind of on the heels of the early 90s kind of Sundance films that came in, mm-hmm. Sex, Lies, and Video, Pulp Fiction, all these movies that kind of came in, did these modern, like, throwbacky things, whatever. And James Cameron comes in, and he does this kind of big, sweeping epic. People like were Hollywood ready, yeah. used to make. People and, ready for a shift. Right, yeah. and I think that's part of why it got so much attention in that particular year. I mean, that's, there's that's plenty of point. other reasons. That's a good but, point. That's a good point. Um, you look at every website or list or anything that does, you know, accumulates critic scores or anything, Titanic loses in every every single one of them. And I think, again, you go back and you hold the vote again today, LA Confidential wins easily. There's a super, super intense interrogation scene in this mm-hmm. movie that is just incredible the way that Hanson directs it. And just, I mean, Russell Crowe is, Russell Crowe. <laughs> <laughs> Russell Crowe is terrifying in that scene. I mean, he's so intense and just, I mean, uh, my heart's pounding during that scene in the movie. Are your knees weak? <laughs> My knees weren't weak. Okay. <laughs> Not there. Yeah, I, again, it, it all ties back to these three characters and watching the interplay between the three of them. And they were so perfectly balanced. And, and each of them,
them each they're they're all toxic with each other but they also kind of need each other and it's so fascinating to watch when I mean, Russell Crowe you take his character for example he's this brutal kind of meathead who just beats the hell out of everyone but he's but he's deeper than that yeah, when you find out why mm-hmm. he's like that and the fact he's got a moral compass yeah, driving it he's like yeah. a protector of women he he hates mm-hmm men who beat women right. and he goes back and it explains why um, then it, you get the opposite in Guy Pierce, whose moral compass is very flexible right but on the outside has this appearance of what, what people want in a police right. officer right and then you've got this other opposite <laughs> in Kevin Spacey who just he doesn't even really want to be a cop he right. just loves the Hollywood aspect of it and he's just doing it you know to, to meet women um, watching these three kind of reluctantly team up together to, to again it goes back to what I was saying earlier in Fellowship of the Ring it's like I love teams I love groups of people coming together and in this case it's people coming together that they don't want to I thought that Curtis Hansen kind of came out of nowhere with this movie, but he'd been directing like for 30 well, years or something. In, in a way, well, in a way he did come out of nowhere and then he kind of went back to nowhere. I mean, <laughs> yeah, he comes, yeah. he comes out of, he does this film and then it was like after that. Well, and then passed away recently, right? He yeah. did. He passed away in the past year. I'm excited to revisit this one. I was sad I couldn't so for this good. episode, but uh, I did, I did just get it for $4 at Target on, no. on Blu-ray. <laughs> yeah. All right. Uh, Jordan, number one. Dead Poet Society. Peter Weir's 1989 masterpiece coming-of-age story about a group of elite private school students and their new poetry teacher, Mr. John Keating, played with utter perfection by Robin Williams, who gives an emotional performance but rounds it out with those, unlike the Hamlet that I brought up earlier, Robin Williams humorously tells his class that Shakespeare doesn't have to be told that way. Now, many of you have seen Shakespeare done very much like this. Oh, Titus, bring your friend hither. (laughs) But if any of you have seen Mr. Marlon Brando, know that Shakespeare can be different. France, Romans, countrymen, <laughs> let me rest. <laughs> you can also imagine maybe John Wayne is Macbeth going, well, is this a dagger I see before me? <laughs> but the acting power doesn't stop there. The rest of the cast gives phenomenal performances, especially Ethan Hawke and Robert Sean Leonard. Hmm. Peter Weir delivers a film here with so much power and so much heart that is also filled with humor and goodness and inspiration, which are things you guys know I normally don't like in movies, but this is the exception. Many of the scenes are built in a way that they start with a simple idea and then Weir adds layer upon layer until the scene is spinning almost out of control, reaching an inspiring fever pitch. But instead of this supremely inspiring and honest and phenomenal film, the Academy gives best picture to Driving Miss Daisy. That's not a full knock on Miss Daisy. In, in fact, it's pretty great. Mm-hmm. I might argue that it's the greatest sweet movie of all time. Another genre uh, that I really hate. But sweet movies? Yeah, sweet movies. <laughs> but I love them. Totally Ugh, sweet They're babies. the worst. It is a sweet movie, and it makes you feel good. It's a beautiful story of an unlikely friendship, and I, I like it a lot. But it's nothing compared to the sheer power and wonder and inspiration of Dead Poets Society. Mm-hmm. The ending alone should have sealed the deal. But the entire two hours before the ending are utter perfection as well. Eat it, Miss Daisy. (laughs) Ooh, burn. (laughs) I feel like this is a very special year in film for me personally, and I think for people our age, because Mm. it was the first time we started paying attention, like, oh, movies can be serious, movies can say something, maybe we would watch the Academy Awards for the first time. Mm -hmm. And so these these movies represent that for me. So the other movies, so Driving Miss Daisy, Dead Poet Society, Field of Dreams. I remember watching all of those and just being like, oh, wait, this is what movies can do. Like, they can say something special and they can be something bigger right. and they can have affect me personally. Uh, I'm going to be honest. I didn't see Dead Post Society until about seven or eight years later. And okay. part of it was because everybody was freaking out about it so much. I just 
it freaked you out. <laughs> <laughs> I, didn't do yeah. it. I don't know for whatever reason, I just kind of pushed back with it. And and also, I wasn't a there's certain Robin Williams performances that kind of go over the top. Uh, how about so, all of them except yeah. this one? <laughs> yeah, yeah, every I single mean, one. Of them like, he's got a couple there. There, he's pretty underplayed. But uh, I mean, once I saw this, I got it. I understood why everybody loved it. Mm. So I, my fond memory of Dead Poet Society. This is the movie I had to go see when uh, Batman was sold out back in 1989. <laughs> this was the only other movie that had tickets available. <laughs> it wasn't just me. The theater was packed with people who thought they were going to see Batman. <laughs> like kids so, Batman I'm serious. So if you'd been in that theater, it was filled with people wearing Batman shirts, a guy dressed up as Batman. It was hilarious. By the That's end, great. no one was thinking about Batman anymore. Yeah. This is a powerful, beautiful movie that is still yeah. quoted in familiar to audiences today. Yeah. It's a great pick. Yeah, it, it, it had a profound effect on me. It's it's the first movie I can remember watching when I was young and, and really walking out wanting to live a better life like mm. and and find my Which voice. Which sounds like something you would hate. It yeah. does sound like something I would hate and I think normally it is because it's so often when movies try to do this they ring false for me yeah and there is nothing false in this it, movie. there is authentic authenticity throughout it it it, de- it goes to some dark places mm-hmm. and it and it, it does it gets its message of hopefulness across via a lot of cynicism too i mean there's a there's a character who kills himself yeah. there's i mean there are people who catch the brunt the the the, mm. the other side of the coin of what happens if you don't follow the message of this movie the characters are so well defined each of the boys that are in this group are so so well defined that i think just about anybody at least a young man or boy watching it can relate with one of the characters mm-hmm. yep and, and and find something in that character to to better himself by. And and we've talked a lot about doing an episode around like manliest movies and if we did, this would easily be my, my number one. I, yeah. think, I think it's crucial. I'll say this, the movie, uh, as of this recording, is 20, uh, 28 years old. Mm-hmm. Does not look like it's aged today. No. Mm-hmm. It, it lo- I mean, it looks like it could have been made last week if you just didn't. I mean, you recognize the actors and you know that they're not that young now right. or alive now. <laughs> um, but it, it looks wonderful. And part of that's the fact that it's set in a, in, you know, back in, I think, in the 1930s or 50s, 40s. 50s. Or 50s. Yeah. Great pick. It, it, Peter Weir. Peter Weir's a great director. A fantastic director. And uh, I was listening to some interviews with Ethan Hawke about this movie and he's he's saying like Peter Weir for the two weeks that we rehearsed before the movie that he he wouldn't allow them to like listen to anything other than 50s and like he wanted to do away with any any modern mannerisms or anything that these boys did and he but he wanted them to really get to know each other too and you can really sense that that these these kids really really knew each other um, and I'm blown away by Ethan Hawke's performance in this. That's I wish incredible. all Robin Williams movies could have been this good because the, for a <laughs> while we, we got hit with this litany of Robin Williams movies where it was like how he, many he voices was, can well, you do? Yeah and it was like he was trying to get in our hearts with humor so he could teach us something about the human yeah. condition and yeah. it just never worked. Like maybe he's like Patch Adams. I just got, I got so tired of these movies and this was one of the first ones he did. Good Morning Vietnam I thought was a great film too and then it seems like after those two I just never got the Robin Williams I wanted. Well, he kept I trying I to duplicate this success yeah, and yeah. going the wrong I don't way. Know how much I want to blame it on Robin Williams. I, I, I imagine that a lot of directors who directed him after wanted to invoke that feeling that Robin Williams invokes in Dead Poet Society to audiences with yeah. their movies. And yeah, free will, Jordan. Wasn't going to happen. Wanted to <laughs> wasn't going to happen. Uh, what are you guys excited about? I am excited about a little television show called Unsolved Mysteries mm. that started back, I believe, 88, 89. Robert Stack was the host. It is now streaming on Amazon Prime, and I am obsessed. Now, don't you own all of them on DVD already? No, you, you can't You some? can't buy them. So what they did was a few years ago, they released different themes, like episodes tied to a theme, uh, like ghosts or UFOs. So you had as many as you could as get. As many as I could get. Now, like the entire first season is on, and I've been binge-watching them. I love Unsolved Mysteries. It's one of my favorite TV shows of all time cool i'm excited about the 2000 
18 Oscars next year and seeing <laughs> oh, James McAvoy win all the freaking awards for Split because he was amazing in it. Probably not going to happen. You guys need to see. My it. My guess is that's yeah. not going to happen. I would not be shocked if he's not. If he's not. I was. I'll say this about early. Gibby. Gibby has a pretty impressive track record of predicting Oscar outcomes. He does pretty good. He's got I his mean, thumb on. He the... he he predicted that Return of the King would win all the awards that year, and I didn't like. And this was like three years prior to it happening. I didn't. I was. I argued. I was like, "There's no way." He was totally right. Hmm. Yeah, I think McAvoy is fantastic <clears throat> in it, and people. By the time this comes out, it's been about a month and a half since it was released, but it's a great film, and uh, catch up with it if it's still out there. It probably still will be. All right. I am excited about this book that I just started. It's called The Girl with All the Gifts. It's written by M.R. Carey, which is the novelist name for the comic book writer Mike Carey, who's known for the Vertigo books Unwritten and Lucifer. The Girl with All the Gifts is kind of a unique spin on a zombie story, which even that makes me roll my eyes and mm-hmm. not want to read it. I just rolled mine. But I picked up the book because people were saying, like on Amazon, they were saying, don't ruin the book. Don't say what it's about. Know as little about it as possible. So that's all I'm going to say about it. I picked it up and I love it so far. And it was the type of movie from the first chapter. I'm like, I could see how this could be a movie. I could like figure out how to adapt it. Mm-hmm. And then of course I looked it up and it's already a movie, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> but um, they came out in 2016, but it was only released in the UK. So it didn't have a wide release. So, yeah. uh, and I'm trying to avoid anything you get about the movie. Oh, the movie. No, I got the book. Okay. The, it was the, the movie was only released in the UK, yeah. but it, it's great so far. So I'm very excited about finishing it. So in my opinion, the greatest live album of all time is Yanni Live at the Acropolis. I thought you meant the band Live. No, there's no great live albums <laughs> no, by the band Live or any albums by the band Live. Anyway, Yanni Live at the Acropolis is <laughs> live, live is <laughs> an, an unbelievably incredible. Anyway, people have, are probably wondering why we're not mocking you that for this. It's because we've heard it one million <laughs> yeah, times. Yeah, just, it's uh, doesn't surprise yeah, us right, anymore. But, <laughs> the point I'm getting to is that I have it on cassette in my car, and I used to listen to it all the time. And then my tape player started doing this weird thing where, like, halfway through my favorite song, it would just flip sides and I couldn't ever hear the mm. last half of my favorite song in there which has the bass solo and the violin solo it's, weird that, that it, so it's weird that a tape player, player would be malfunctioning <laughs> in 2016 God well, 17 yeah, you, didn't take it, you didn't take it to Circuit City to get it looked at <laughs> I didn't <laughs> so what would happen if you drove up to Best Buy yeah. right now with your like yeah. oh guys my cassette hey, tape's not work on this anyway I got a wild hair today on my way on my long drive up here and I, I popped it in because I really wanted to hear it and it didn't do it today. And I'm so excited about how I got to listen that's, to the that's whole That's where tape. all this was headed. That is oh. exciting. All right. Cool. <laughs> Great. <laughs> thanks, for, thanks for listening, you guys. Yeah, thanks. Hey, Go listen gonna, to Yanni Live at the Acropolis. Yeah, thanks, guys. Y- more like Yanni. Uh, no. Zing. Hey, y'all. Tune in next week when the four of us will choose our favorite underrated movies. We'll explore Roger Livesey's mustache, Brad Pitt's frosted tips, Ewan McGregor's butt, Tom Hanks's scars, and Cameron Diaz's um, box. Ah, oh, come on, guys. Who wrote this? This is Morgan Freeman. Let us know how your list differs at, at Fight About Film on Facebook and Twitter. Or email us at fightaboutfilm at gmail.com. Please subscribe and leave a review on iTunes. Four Friends Fight About Film is produced by the Brothers Ray in Atlanta, Georgia. This episode was recorded and edited by Jordan Noel. Get busy living, get busy dying.
is Annie Hall, Charles H. Joplin.